All right, you can turn to Genesis 3. Uh, we're in chapter, chapter 3, verses 20 to 24. Genesis 3, 20 to 24. You never know how it's going to go with a puppet. <laughs> All right, starting in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. I have so many questions about this text. (laughs) Don't you? There are so many things to get into. But here's what I want to start with is acknowledging two slippery slopes, two ditches on either side of the road that we have to avoid with this text, okay? The first slippery slope is looking at all the stuff about special trees and the paradise and the talking snake and say, it's just a fable. It's a folk tale, right? It's mere symbolism. That's all it really is. That's the first slippery slope. The second is to look at the story and say, it's mere history, All it is, is a simple, you know, recording of what happened, just like a security camera footage. The road of truth that runs between those two ditches is much more sophisticated and much more beautiful. The Bible's authors were inspired by the Holy Spirit and brilliant artists brilliant authors, and they were able to take true things that really happened, to take historical realities and tell their stories in such a way that they become woven with rich meaning through imagery and symbolism. And it becomes more meaningful and more important as the story of the Bible unfolds. So was there really a special tree of life in a garden? Yes, yes, I believe that there was. But if we look at this text and we spend all of our time trying to figure out, you know, what the fruit was like and was it the fruit that made people live or was it God that made people live? I think we're going to be missing the point. Let me put it this way. In a garden on a mountain, there was a tree. And if you were to receive this tree's food, you would live forever. You would never die. You would continue on and on living in the pleasure of peace with God and the joy of his presence. But when our first parents chose to eat from another tree, the forbidden tree, they forfeited their right to that eternal life, to access to this tree, and they died a real spiritual death, and then they were exiled away from the tree of life. And humanity never came back out of exile. Not really. They never regained full access to the tree of life. But Thousands of years later, in the midst of our dark and deadly exile, a Jewish man named Jesus, surprise, shows up on the scene and claimed to be eternal life himself. The thing they were exiled from, ultimately. 
And he said that if you receive his food, you would live forever. Go on and on in the pleasure of peace with God and joy in his presence. Now, the whole point of the tree of life is that they could eat from it and get eternal life, right? That's what God says, therefore, therefore, right? Lest he send out his hand and take and eat and live forever, I'll send him out. The point of the tree of life is that you get eternal life. But what is eternal life? Is it merely just going on and on? Or is there more to it? Jesus said this in John 17, three. He says, this is eternal life. So from the words of Jesus, he's like definition of eternal life. Ready? That they know the only true God and Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. That's in a prayer. John 17 is what we call the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He's praying to the father and he's confessing to the father. He's agreeing with God, his father, that the, the, the substance, the real heart of eternal life is actually knowing God, like real intimacy with God and Jesus Christ, whom God sent for that purpose. Knowing God and knowing Jesus is eternal life. And what do we get from that? What does that look like? Well, Jesus addressed that too in John 14, 27. He said, peace, I live with you, leave with you. My peace I give to you. So when we know God and we know Jesus, we get peace, peace with God. Then in the next chapter, John 15, 11, he said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. When we know God through Jesus, we get peace with God and joy. That's the fruit of eternal life in our lives. That's what it's like. So this man, Jesus Christ, claimed to be the way back to everything that the tree of life stood for. In fact, he called himself the way. It's not just poetic. We're exiled. And he's the way back. There is no other way to eternal life. There's no other way to know the Father but Jesus. And after saying these things, he died and he paid the price for the sins of his people. And he died on a tree, on a mountain, in a garden. So was there really a tree of life? Yeah. But Jesus didn't model his ministry after the tree. Jesus didn't read Genesis and go, you know, that's a good idea. I think I'll die on a tree. That's not how that worked. God put that tree in the midst of the garden to point to the eternal son of God who always was and would be the tree of life. Jesus is the pattern. The tree is not the pattern. Eden is not the pattern. Christ is the pattern. It's always been that way. Now, uh, let's look at Genesis 3.23 for a moment and notice that word, therefore. I pointed this out earlier, but it bears repeating. The reason why the man was exiled from the garden was because he had forfeited his right to life, to eternal life. He forfeited his right to stand in the presence of God at peace with God and to have joy in his presence. So he was kicked out and he never got back. 
So this is a story of exile. And this is the sort of gateway to the whole Bible story. The Bible story is a story of exile. So we're going to look at exile this morning. And we'll see how it explains us really well. And then what we can do about it. So three points. The exile explains us. The temple explains the garden and the blood rescues us. And here's basically the thesis for the sermon to to help you track. This is where we're going with all this. We can have the pleasure and presence of God now in the midst of our exile, only through the blood of Jesus. I don't think we believe that. Not deep down. So number one, the exile explains us. Now, the text of the Old Testament came together in its final form, in the way that we have it today, in a time of exile. So, you know, years, centuries and centuries after King David's reign, for instance, the kingdom of Israel goes into exile. And then a hundred and so years later, the kingdom of Judah, these two sister kingdoms, Judah is also sent into exile in Babylon. And it's during and after that exile in Babylon that they finalize and assemble what we now know as the Old Testament. The Bible was born out of exile. And frankly, when they came back, we call it the post-exilic period, Ezra and Nehemiah, when the, when the uh, people of Judah and Israel came back to the promised land, they just straggled in. They never really got back. They're never really home from their exile. The book is a book of exile. They're exiled from the garden to the east in Genesis. In the book of Exodus, they're sort of inside out exiled from Egypt to the east as they wander the wilderness to the promised land. Then they're exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon in the east. And after the resurrection of Jesus, the New Testament authors refer to us as exiles, sojourners, strangers, and aliens. We're still in exile. We have been since Genesis 3, and we still are. In other words, exile is not just something that can happen to us. It's not like, watch out, you might be exiled. Exile explains us. the present human condition. Because we're born in sin and because we keep choosing sin and death every day, we have forfeited our right to stand in the presence of God on our own two feet and experience peace and joy in his presence. We've forfeited our right to eternal life. So now our normal experience without Christ is marked by extraordinary distance from God, such that we don't even think he exists unless he opens our eyes to see it. Now the human experience is marked by shame and hiding from each other and from God, even from ourselves. And it's marked by toil, earning, as we try in vain to just fight our way back to that peace and joy that we really long for deep down. And then it ends in physical death when our bodies finally just succumb to that reality that we're already dead spiritually, that we're already separated from God and from each other. Our bodies finally just give in and say, you're right, with a final separation. That's what it's like to be in exile. And exile also means that this life will be 
punctuated with moments of unfulfilled, almost painful longing. Do you know that feeling of wanting something, longing for something good so deeply that it almost hurts because you can't really have it? Not fully. We're never really able to feel satisfied with anything. Nothing ever really fills us deep down. Amen. <laughs> C.S. Lewis knew that feeling really well. Um, his little spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy, is kind of the story of that feeling. It's my favorite Lewis book. I highly recommend it. But he explained that feeling of painful longing with a German word. Germans have the best words. The German word is sansucht. Anyone speak German and want to correct my pronunciation? <laughs> sansucht is the best I can do. I think that's right. Sansucht is a feeling of joy stained with longing. I get sansucht in the fall. <laughs> uh, I love the fall. I love the colors. I love the sounds and the crispness in the air and everything. And I hate how fleeting it is. You know, the colors outside of our door in, the, in the, just the hills right in this neighborhood are incredible. And in a week, it's going to be twigs. It's just going to be gone. So I want to just crawl inside of autumn itself. Or I want to put autumn in my pocket where I can just get at it whenever I want and have it with me. But it's just vanity. I can't ever really feel like I have enough of it before it's gone. All of the beauty of this life is like that. Not one of our joys is complete. You have a baby and you look at this little baby's face and you're like, it's perfect. Don't grow up. <laughs> and then they grow. And every stage is wonderful, but there's always a little pain. Becca sent me a video yesterday that someone took, I think while she was in labor with Eleanor, Someone was watching our kids at home, our other two kids, and was just having a conversation with them. And it almost hurt to watch. Do you know that feeling, parents? It's sansuit. All of our desires are never fully satisfied. And we don't always just go to, you know, home videos and fall hikes to satisfy ourselves. We go to rotten things as well to satisfy ourselves. There's an ancient Hebrew proverb that says, the grave and the underworld are never satisfied and never satisfied are the eyes of man. That's the reality of exile. We are only created to feel fully satisfied, to feel fully at rest and home when we have peace with God and joy in his presence. That's the only thing that will fill us. So when we're exiled from that tree of life, nothing will ever be quite enough. Just give me one more drink. Just give me one more look, one more serving. Just give me one more pay raise. Another Hebrew proverb says, the leech has two daughters, give and give. That feeling of trying to suck life dry just so we can feel satisfied with something, so we can feel something like we finally have enough, that is the feeling of exile. You know, I was re driving in this morning. It's, you know, a really long, like four minute drive. And I turned on the radio and a John Lee Hooker song was on, singing about heaven. You know, 
white Americans don't understand exile like a lot of other cultures in this world do. He got it. The longing, the pain, I'm home, but I'm not quite home. This isn't quite right. That's the feeling of exile. Exile explains us. So if the problem with us is that we're exiled from the tree of life, from the only thing that will really satisfy peace and joy with God, what's the solution? How do we get back to the garden where we can have peace with God and joy in his presence? Now to answer that, um, we have to follow the theme of the garden through scripture until we get to Jesus. And it might get nerdy and I'm, I can't wait for it. So uh, number two, the temple explains the garden. Now we've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. When ancient peoples would have read Genesis 2 and 3, the descriptions of the garden, they would have said, right, yeah, it's a temple. It doesn't come into our minds. We read it and go, yeah, it's a garden, cool. Weird that there's a snake. Ancients read it and go, yep, temple. I understand that. Because the garden in Eden is described with temple-like language. And the temple is described with garden-like language. Uh, Now, I drew a couple of rudimentary diagrams. Um, Please forgive my lack of art skills. To help illustrate how the temple relates to the garden, if we could pull the first one up on the screen. All right, three circles and, and an arrow going to the right. The circle in the middle... This will be the garden itself, the the center of it all, the thick presence of God, the tree of life. It's the garden. Now the garden is in Eden. So the next bigger circle, the middle circle, this is the region of Eden. And beyond that is the wilderness. That's how the story's told. There's three sort of tiers. So if you read Genesis three and four straight through, you ignore the chapter division, right? Just read it like a book. What happens is they're put in a garden They're exiled to Eden and Cain is exiled further into the wilderness. It's a three-stage thing. Good, I'm glad that makes sense, William. So let's leave that on the screen and read again from Genesis 3, verse 24. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the trees of life. All right, so notice it said at the east of the garden, God put the cherubim. Now, for a very long time, I just assumed the cherubim were guarding Eden. They're guarding the garden, right? Uh, So those two red dots in the drawing represent those two guardian cherubim. It's a very accurate uh, representation of cherubim. (laughs) So at the gate of the garden, are two guardians, two sentinels, two angelic-like, sphinx-like creatures called cheruvim. And they're standing guard with a sword, protecting the way back to eternal life. Now let's go to the next diagram. This is a temple. (laughs) I know it looks a lot like a temple. The temple was designed to reflect the garden. You see it in that three-tiered structure. In the center square, the smallest little square, is the most holy place. The most holy place inside is the menorah and the Ark of the Covenant of God, right, with cherubim overshadowing the mercy seat. The next rectangle out from there is the holy place. So you have the most holy place and the holy place. It's like level two. 
And then the largest rectangle is the courtyard. And once a year, only once a year, the high priest would go into the most holy place and offer a blood sacrifice on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. He would move from the east to the west, like a reverse exile. Exile is always to the east, guys. That's just how the Bible authors portrayed this to help us track with what's going on. The priest goes to the west because temple doors always face the east. And he goes once a year, like an excursion back into the garden. That room was full of pomegranates and almond blossom carvings, trees, foliage. And it was guarded by two cherubim statues at the door. You with me? Okay. So in the garden, good. In the garden, God says, you forfeited the right to eternal life in my presence. That's justice. We sinned. We deserve that. In the temple, God reflects the same imagery and says, but I'm showing you the way back to the tree. I'm showing you through the temple the way back to life, back to me. And that's mercy. That's what the temple was always for. It stood to show the people how to get back to paradise with God how they can have eternal life. In between the garden and then the temple, which Solomon built, we get what? We get a tabernacle. And God sends them this tabernacle like a mobile temple. It was a tent that would travel with them in the wilderness. So as these people wandered the wilderness in their exile, the book of Exodus, God set up this tent among them, and he covered it with animal skins, just like he clothed the man in skins before sending him into exile. So that even in our exile, we're taught by the tabernacle that God is making a way for us to have life. What do you do if you can't go to the garden? God sends the garden to you. That's incredible. But the way And the only way this works in the temple and the tabernacle is blood. Remember the thesis of the sermon. The whole point is we can have the pleasure and presence of God now in the midst of our exile only through the blood of Jesus. So the exile from the garden teaches us about the justice of God and the tabernacle and the temple teach us about the mercy of God. We can get back to peace with God and joy in his presence. And there's only one way. And it's through blood being shed on your behalf to pay for your sins. So that takes us to point number three, the last point. The blood rescues us. The blood rescues us. So remember I said earlier that the tree of life wasn't the pattern. Jesus was the pattern. Does that make sense? Yeah. The entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament is the same way. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was slain for the sins of the world, wasn't modeled on the book of Leviticus. Leviticus was modeled on Jesus, right? Jesus is the Lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. Ladies, you studied the unchangeableness of God at the women's retreat recently. God does not change. He is who he is and he always will be that. So how is it possible that Jesus was one day not incarnate and the next day was incarnate. One day wasn't 
dying on a cross the next day was. How's that possible without change? Because Revelation 13, eight tells us that he was always the one who was slain for the sins of the world. Before God even created any of this, he had the whole plan mapped out for your good and Christ's glory. Jesus's death on the cross is not modeled after these sacrifices. The sacrifices are modeled after Jesus and they all point to him. So every time a priest moved from the east to the west toward the most holy place, toward the garden, toward the presence of God, blood was required. The blood of lambs and goats and bulls day after day, week after week, century after century, day and night, morning and evening sacrifices. The perpetual shedding of blood was Israel's constant reminder and their teacher that sin leads to death and God is just. To pay for such a serious offense, a life would be required. They practiced this for thousands of years. Leviticus 17, 11 says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Hebrews 9.22, indeed under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the garden showed us that sin sends us into exile from life. The temple showed us that the way back to life is through blood sacrifice. It's justice and mercy. So every time the high priest stepped into the most holy place where atonement happens, where you could get peace with God and joy in his presence. Every time he goes in on Yom Kippur, he does so by enacting the reality that the only way back to God is someone else dying for you. It's the only way back. In other words, the solution to our exile from the tree is blood, blood sacrifice. It's not a stretch. I'm not making this up. Again, read Genesis three and four straight through. What happens at the end of Genesis three? Exile. What's the first thing that happens in Genesis four? Sacrifice. Because they knew. The answer to exile is someone paying for the sins that put you there so that you can go back. So Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, bring sacrifices Seems like they're bringing them to the gates of the garden. One brings a blood sacrifice, that's Abel, and one brings plants. Which one is accepted by God? It's Abel's offering of blood. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks today. Abel still speaks by faith. By faith in Jesus, the lamb who was slain, Abel tells us that the way home is through the blood of Christ. The Bible's very clear though, that the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, etc., isn't enough. It was never enough. 
They were just foreshadowing the blood of the lamb, the lamb of God. When John, when John the Baptist laid eyes on Jesus for the first time, he couldn't help himself. It was probably weird for the people around him. He just jumped up, points and shouts, behold, that's the lamb. We've been waiting so long for the thing that this all pointed to, and it's him, he's right there. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God really did atone for the sins of his people in the Old Testament, but it wasn't by the blood of their animal sacrifices. It was by faith. It was looking with the eyes of faith through the sacrifice to Christ, to whom it always pointed. And the the, the Christians, the first Christians 2000 years ago, they totally got this, guys. Like I am slow on the uptake. They immediately got it. Think about it. The entire ethnic and national identity of this group of believers who were Jews was wrapped up in sacrifices. Their sacrificial system is what made them different than everybody else. It was a matter of extreme importance to them. It was their pride. It was their identity. So what could make a group of Jews like that, Jews who were proud to be Jewish, who had been sacrificing animals for thousands of years, what could make them stop and never look back in 33 AD? The Lamb of God. When he gave his blood for them, it was a once for all sacrifice such that they all looked at it with the eyes of faith that the spirit gave them. And they looked at all the blood that they had shed over the years and they said, it was always about Jesus. That was always the point. When they received the sacrificial atoning work of Jesus, they didn't have to sacrifice anymore, not for forgiveness. They just received eternal life. And they would remember that sacrifice continually throughout the ages by eating a meal. This one, a simple little meal that we're gonna eat together in a few minutes. So when we get together and do the Lord's Supper, it's not some weird you know, ritual or just some strange American Baptist kind of tradition. We are reenacting, practicing, and remembering that in Christ, we step back into the garden on the basis of his blood. And in Christ, we get to eat from that tree. We get to have peace with God and joy in his presence. So we are still in exile We're still strangers and aliens in the world. We feel that. We're not really home. Everything's fleeting. But here's how the Bible ends. This is from Revelation 22, 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that's in the blood of the lamb, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. There is a way to live in this wilderness of a world where you actually are satisfied. It's possible. You can actually be full of joy. You can have the pleasure of peace with God. You can have fullness of joy in his presence. The very joy of Jesus himself, he says, he gives to us. And it's only through blood.
Jesus' blood. So when we go to stand before the throne of God, we are either going to hold up a list of all of our sacrifices and point to all of the blood that we've shed and say, look at what I've done for you. Let me in. Or we'll just point to the cross and say, look what he did for me. We're either going to trust in the blood of our sacrifices to save us or we'll wash our garments in the blood of the lamb and trust him to give us life. I'm going to end on a strange note. I'm going to talk about antinomianism and legalism. (laughs) Always a great way to end the sermon, right? Big words. Antinomianism. So in the New Testament, especially the Apostle Paul, has to grapple with uh, different kinds of Christians who struggle with different kinds of things. We know what that's like. You know, my struggle is not going to be your struggle. But everybody's basically going to fit in two camps. We all are either going to be leaning toward antinomianism or leaning toward legalism. What do I mean? Okay, antinomianism just means against the law. It's people who, it's, uh, we might call it like cheap gracism, right? Um, antinomianism basically means cheapening God's law and not thinking that it's important or relevant. It just doesn't apply to me. It's not a big deal. It doesn't really matter. Grace, right? That's antinomianism. Legalism means the opposite. We, we legalists think that we have to rigorously keep all of his laws. We have to really work hard to please God to earn back what we lost by our sins. You feel that? The need to make penance? I've sinned, now I've got to really earn back his favor? All of us tend toward one or the other of those. Antinomianism, the cheap grace, it cheapens the justice of God and says, actually, God doesn't really take sin seriously. Legalism cheapens the mercy of God. Both fly in the face of Jesus, the Son of God. Band, you can come up while I wrap this up. I don't want to cheapen God's justice or his mercy. I want to drink from that fountain and actually get satisfied by the real Jesus, who is full of both. Faith in Jesus and his atoning, reconciling, life-giving, once-for-all sacrifice is the only way back to life. Keeping the rules won't do it, and shunning the rules won't do it. Only faith. So it all comes down to this. Will you trust him to be the final payment for your sins and give you the right to the tree of life? the right? Or will you keep killing goats and trying to earn it? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we are tired of earning and sacrificing. We're we're exhausted because it's never enough. But you are enough. Help us to look to you and your sacrifice by faith so that you can look at our blood-washed garments, call us pure, and give us life. Thank you for sending Christ to be the life with us, Emmanuel, God with us in the midst of our exile.
as we're wandering home. Come near to us now, Lord Jesus. Amen.